0: Samo Farah, London, 2012. This is my country. The noise is incredible. 60,000 humans shouting, screaming, bellowing, shrieking, pleading with the skies in favour of the one man, all willing him to win. Throw in the roar of a jet engine taking off, jungle beasts in the night, migrating birds and the crash of waves, and you have some idea of the extraordinary sound being generated by the crowd in the new Olympic Stadium at the east end of the City of London at the Games of 2012, as the 5,000-metre running race reaches a climax and the home hero has a chance to win. It's hard to think, hard, Even to breathe, but who can breathe right now? Everyone is breathless, on their feet or on their toes, looking down into the arena at the orange track encircling a field of bright green, all shining under floodlights, and 15 figures moving fast through the iridescence, tight together as if fleeing from a common foe. But all eyes are on the one in the white vest and blue shorts. A slender man with a sloping gait who is quite possibly the greatest British athlete of all time and is now attempting to prove it when it really matters at the finale of the sporting event of the century. In this country, anyway. A show so huge we've run out of hyperbole. Mohammed Farah, as we know him in the summer of 2012, And everybody knows the story that he was born in Somalia 29 years ago, taken to Djibouti to escape the chaos of a civil war, then brought to London to be with his dad at the age of eight. Barely speaking a word of English at first, but growing up in West London, playing, laughing, learning, dreaming of becoming a car mechanic or striking for Arsenal working in mcdonald's instead but running and running and running and winning school title after school title until he was getting help with training becoming a british citizen working his way without really knowing it towards this moment the here and now the climax of a golden summer we've learned to call him mo this spark in a fire of pride and optimism. And here he is now, as the games approach their end, still holding the hopes of a nation in his metronomic heart. Down there, in the centre of the light, steady in the middle of a fight. The running pack is tight. There are fears the others will gang up on him, crowd him out, or do whatever it takes to deny him a second gold medal at these games. Although that's patriotic paranoia talking. They're just out to win as much as he is. And they are some of the finest runners ever to glide across long distances. These runners are going slowly by their own standards, as the stadium commentator says, and they do make it look effortless. But as they come round the bend and down the straight and past the press seats where I'm sitting, they are flying. Mo's been at the back, worrying those who have not seen him before. But I just saw a wise mum away to my left lean over and shout in the ear of a panicking dad, it's okay, Mo knows what he's doing. And we hope so as the message is passed on to their kid. We really hope so. We mums and dads and sons and daughters, flag wavers and bearers of homemade placards, we chanters and screamers, we jumpers and shufflers, the overexcited and the playing it cool and the dizzy from the noise and the ones who are dazed by the head-spinning intensity of this moment. And I'm trying to think of words to write for my report, trying to focus and get this right knowing I will have to press send as soon as the race ends, hoping my nerve won't go, telling myself, say what you see, say what you see, write that down. And Mo is in the middle with a mile to go. But then he moves up the field again as they take another bend and the screams come harder, faster, higher. And I see what they're doing. I see it now. And marvel. A Mexican wave in the crowd, of course. As we've seen so often here, a great sweep of human movement as people rise up in turn around the stadium, raise their hands in salute, then sit down again to watch the waves sweep on. But this one's different. At the top of the wave, as they stand, they call out his name, Mo, and bow down and stretch out their hands towards him in the gesture from the movie Wayne's World which says we are not worthy. But there's more because this is done with a strange supernatural sense of collective timing. So the rise and the fall and the call are always just ahead of Mo as he runs and the energy it creates seems to pull him forward at an ever greater speed like we're doing it with him. So when the bell rings for the final lap and Mo is in second place, we know he'll go. And so he does. Up to first, he's leading with the pride of Kenya and Ethiopia in his wake. And they're all flat out. They've been running for a dozen minutes, but this is a sprint finish and Mo has more. He's all out now, crossing the line, a winner, looking astonished. Eyes and arms open wide as if he can't believe it. We can't believe it. And the noise, the noise is incredible. I've been to see the loudest rock bands in the world and witnessed winning goals at massive stadiums, but I've never heard anything like this or felt anything like the collective release. What a race. What a race. What a man. The reporter next to me is yelling her head off, punching the air she's from Estonia it doesn't matter Mo's wife is down at the front heavily pregnant with twins and Evan only knows how she doesn't have them right here and now Jamaicans are laughing because their hero Usain Bolt did press-ups after smashing the 200 and now Mo is sitting on the track doing sit-ups to match his mate's joke after the race of his life And in comes a thunder of a song we've heard so many times now at these games. David Bowie singing, we can be heroes. How strange to hear his howl of anguish, captured in a studio by the Berlin Wall at the height of the Cold War, used now as a rallying cry for British athletes. And yet, it makes sense in this summer of transformation. Muslims are terrorists, the British have been told falsely, subliminally, explicitly since 9-11 and 7-7. But here is a British Muslim kneeling to kiss the track and raising his hands to Allah while the crowd continues to chant his name. And seconds later, he's trotting along the perimeter, high-fiving kids, posing for pictures, being showered with love while wrapped in the Union flag. And we are all being remade. In this beautiful moment the hatred and the fear won't go away things will get worse in some ways but maybe this hero worship now will help redefine what it means to be us i go down to the dark tight rooms under the stands to wait for the press conference And when Mo enters in his muted blue tracksuit designed by Stella McCartney, there is spontaneous applause from reporters of all nations, which becomes a standing ovation. The crowd was inspiring for sure, he says. If it wasn't for them, you know, I don't think I would have dug in so deep. It just got louder and louder and louder. It reminded me of when you go to a football match and somebody scores a goal. That's how loud it was. I just thought, wow. Seven years earlier, on the other side of London, a doctor who has just turned 40 is watching the news before work. Because this is not just a story about Samo Farah, and it's not just about the sport or even the games. It's about the best and the worst of us. Dr Andrew Hartle watches a news clip from the previous day of the president of the International Olympic Committee opening an envelope to reveal the results of a vote and say, The Games of the 30th Olympiad in 2012 are awarded to the City of London. Cue pandemonium on the London bid tables in Singapore in this clip, with papers flying in celebration and people dancing on the desks in joy. I'm ecstatic, absolutely ecstatic, says the bid leader, Sebastian Coe, the former gold medalist who is now a lord. Winning the Olympics is seen as a way to unlock billions of pounds to bring London back to its best, even as it struggles with inequality and poverty and the tensions of a world in which the West is at war with the distortion of Islam. Dr Hartle turns off the television and leaves his flat, walking to work at St Mary's Hospital, Paddington, where he is an anaesthetist. And in years to come, he'll remember this moment to me. We hadn't started our list when the cardiac arrest bleeper held by the trainee who was with me went off, saying, major incident. I went straight down to the A&E resuscitation unit The news reports were talking about power surges, but one of the consultants mentioned bombs. That just sent a chill. He had trained for emergencies such as this, but the reality was harder to cope with. The image frozen in my mind is of the first patient who came to us about an hour after the bomb. A patient whose age I couldn't even guess, with probably the most devastating injuries I'd seen in my career. Terrible limb injuries and internal injuries. He was blackened by a mixture of smoke and soot and the dirt of being blown out of a tube train underground. He was going to lose both his legs. The man had been travelling the circle line between Edgware Road and Paddington when a bomb went off in his carriage. Six people were killed, including the bomber. The paramedic who brought the first patient in was somebody Dr Hartle knew. There was a look on his face I'd never seen before. I can't describe it. He was covered in soot and dirt, red in the face and soaking with sweat. It was obvious that what he had seen was something different, something catastrophic. The stench was powerful, says Dr Hartle. The patient's stank of burning smoke. The patient was taken away to the operating theatre. When the bay emptied, it was carnage. There was blood and dirt and clothes and stuff everywhere. One thing I remember clearly is the cleaner turning up with his bucket and just getting on with it. That's how it was. There were no arguments like there might be on a normal day, just a common purpose. The hospital was suddenly full of police dressed in black, carrying heavy machine guns, giving instructions. Anything that came off patients had to be put into paper sacks as evidence, clothes or shrapnel or limbs. Thirty-eight patients were brought into St Mary's that morning, but across the capital there were more than 700 injuries. London was eerily silent. Andrew Hartle told me, years later. There was a growing realisation for me that it hadn't just been a bad day at the office. I'd got off the tube at Edgware Road every other morning that week at ten to nine, which was the exact time when the bomb went off. The day it happened was the first day that week I wasn't there. Only a twist of fate had saved him then. Rather than seeing myself as a doctor who treated other people, I began to take it more personally. I don't ever want any of my patients to die, but there was one of the victims who was seriously ill, and that became a personal challenge. I said, I am not going to let them take another life. I told the doctor I'd been in a terrorist attack myself when the IRA hit Canary Wharf, and I remembered that afterwards, nowhere felt safe, not work. Not the streets, not the train, and not even home. There was a sense of violation. That's a good word, he said, speaking at his flat near the hospital. This dapper, slender man with his clipped beard and careful sentences had been badly shaken that day. Things you assume are safe are not safe anymore. Three bombs. Were detonated on underground trains on the 7th of July 2005, all within 50 seconds of each other. As tube stations were evacuated, many people tried to catch a bus to work instead. Some of them were on the number 30 moving through Tavistock Square an hour later when a fourth bomb ripped it open like a tin can. 52 people died in all that morning in the four attacks across London. The Olympics became inextricably linked in my mind with what happened, said Andrew, who found himself unable to look at news clips of the announcement, even accidentally, without breaking down. London was now a mournful, anxious, stressful, dangerous, difficult place to be and work. I had to think hard when a colleague invited me to apply to become part of the medical team at the Games. So I say yes? Because there was part of me that wanted to be involved in this and make it good, to make up for 7-7. It was really important to me that the Olympics worked, that London could demonstrate that it was about something other than 7-7, that we could deliver something brilliant to be proud of. We don't do Pride very often, and I think we should. Still, he took a bit of convincing about the actual games-making which asked people to be cheerful and positive and friendly at all times. When I sat through the induction training, there was a lot of waving of hands, and I thought, oh my God, this will be terrible. I'm going to loathe it. Then Dr Hartle sat down to watch the opening ceremony put on by Danny Boyle with its eccentric, inclusive and gloriously inventive vision of our history and what it means to be British, from the smokestack chimneys of the Industrial Revolution to the dancing nurses of the NHS and the surprising sight of Her Majesty the Queen acting alongside Daniel Craig as James Bond, leaving Buckingham Palace in a helicopter and appearing to parachute into the stadium With 007, they timed it brilliantly. I was in the stadium, and just a few moments after she landed, as if she had walked through from the back, the real Queen came into the arena to huge applause. I sat on that sofa with tears flowing down my face," said Andrew, who was watching with his future husband. Early the next morning, he travelled to Docklands, where the boxing was to be held under his watchful medical eye. And Andrew realised things felt different. There was a sense of calm and real excitement, a sense of closure. The Olympics were here. They were cathartic. The anxiety had gone. London was not just about 7-7 for me anymore. A couple of days later, as he rode the central line towards Docklands in his pink and purple Games Maker uniform, Andrew saw a familiar face. I thought, it can't be it was Seb Co. he nodded and smiled then came over and asked what I was going off to do I told him and he said he was glad we had the right people in the right places the conversation might have ended there but I asked him to sign my games maker journal which made me feel a bit schoolboyish he thanked me for being part of it but I said no thank you and then I told him why Andrew thought nothing more would come of this encounter until Lord Coe spoke about him on the radio. This was towards the end of the Games, and when the boss of it all was asked for a moment that stood out above all others, he ignored the brilliance of Mo Farah or Jessica Ennis or any of the other athletes and chose instead that conversation with Andrew on the Underground, which he thought would stay with him for the rest of his life. He quoted the Doctor as saying, "'I saw the worst of mankind that morning of the bombs, "'and now I've seen the best. "'I was incredibly moved by what Seb said, "'Andrew told me that summer in 2012.' This has drawn a line. I can watch that clip of London being awarded the Games and not be pulled back into the past.' but feel pride at what we've achieved. Something has ended. This is a new start. We don't often get the chance of that. And now I'm on my feet in the stadium again, yelling at the top of my voice, Only this time, not as a reporter, but as a fan with my family and for the Paralympics. And I'm thinking of a friend from long ago. Her name was Sharon. She lived a mile or so from where this theatre of miracles has been built. And we grew up together in these parts, back when Stratford was all scrapyards, dodgy lockups, and falling-down factories. The sort of place the Sweeney would corner a gang of villains. And I rode my bike. I wish I could say it was a chopper, but it wasn't. Not completely a wasteland then, despite what the politicians said in their desire to clear everyone out for the new gentrification that would go with the Olympics. Because people did live there. Sharon had a council house by the railway yards with her mum, who never let her go anywhere. Sharon also had cerebral palsy. She could walk fast enough, and boy, could she talk. But when I knew her, In her early 20s, she'd never even been to the West End. It's only 20 minutes away on the tube, but her mum would not take her and she certainly would not let her go on her own. The world was deemed too hostile for someone like Sharon and not surprisingly, in those days, she didn't have the confidence to challenge this, not until she started to push the boundaries. And that began one night at the Lee Valley Ice Rink, which is still there, almost within the boundaries of the Olympic Park. Back then it was new and best known for a rowdy Saturday night disco on ice. So we went as a group and we were almost in the door when Sharon was refused entry. The bouncer talked to us and not to her. No, she's not coming in. She can't skate. Sharon was angry, as you might imagine. I can do it, she shouted, but he wouldn't yield. So we decided, as a group of friends, that half of us would skate and half would watch from the side of the rink with her. That was fine by me. I've never been a fan of falling over. I'll just have a drink, said Sharon, accepting her fate, but the bouncer frowned and crossed his arms. No, he said again, not looking at her or talking to her again. I'm not letting her in. She'll put everyone else off. And then there was real anger. Voices were raised and a scene was made. But we had to walk away in the end. We couldn't win. That was all a long time ago. But I think of Sharon now in this other high moment of emotion in the summer of 2012 as I shout along with my children in the stadium, watching another great race at these extraordinary games. The Paralympics following immediately on from the Olympics with the athletes wearing the same kits, representing their country in the same way. And this is a 400 meter race in the T38 class, which is for people with cerebral palsy. Like Sharon. I wonder if she's here. I hope she is. I'd love to know what she makes of this. Men and women with her condition, winning with such noisy support from such a huge crowd, so close to the scene of her humiliation. Well, one of her humiliations. She was used to being shouted at in the street, even spat at in those days. Few people ever listened to what she shouted after them, which was a shame because she was very funny. And wherever she is, I bet Sharon loves the idea of Mo Farah as a British hero. She grew up mixed race on the streets of the East End when skinheads marched here with NF tattooed on their hands. And now? London 2012 has been a celebration of new Britishness. We don't want the games to stop. I know people who are seen as different will continue to be treated with cruelty and disregard. I know the system will continue to be crushing at times. Here in the summer of 2012, I don't know where we will be in 10 years' time, but I know I have seen Paralympians embraced as heroes in the same way as Olympians, maybe even more so. That has to mean something. So I hope you're seeing all this, Sharon. I hope you're here in the stadium, in the old manor, watching, cheering, yelling. And I hope that old bastard of a bouncer is too. Ten years on. I wonder what good it all did, really, and what the legacy of the Olympics really was and what it taught us, other than it's possible for the people of this fractured, troubled, proud country to have a good time, to act with generosity and kindness, to see each other and treat each other as equals. And that's really not nothing, is it? I've been trying in these stories to share the observation that we are all the same, under our finery, under our rags, or our Stella McCartney running gear. Okay, maybe we can't all do what the likes of Sir Mo can do, but even the extraordinarily talented have their flaws. There's a lie going round that you are more worthy of affection if you're famous or rich or have a lot of followers or can run fast. Well... I've met many of those people, and I can say that not far below the surface of their pomp, ceremony, fame, or notoriety, or the weight of their gold medals, they are just like you and me. Anxious, tired, broken, forgetful, impatient, inspiring, engaging, entertaining sometimes. Human. And we're just like them. We have our own struggles and triumphs. That's why so many of us love sport, because it echoes and amplifies what we all go through. But our stories are worth hearing too. We are worth listening to, whoever we are. I've learned as much in my life from somebody like Andrew, Sharon, or Zara, the refugee who crossed the channel in a tiny overladen boat, as I have from somebody famous like Samo, or rather, Hussein Abdi Kahin, because that's Samo's real name. The story he told us about himself. Was not true, but the reasons for telling it were heartbreaking. For years, I just kept blocking out what had happened, he's been saying, but you can only block it out for so long. So we've just learned that he was not actually reunited with his father here because his dad had been killed by gunfire in the breakaway state of Somaliland when the boy was just four years old. And when he came here at the age of eight, He was a victim of child trafficking, brought to the UK under false pretenses by somebody who ripped up all evidence of connection with his real family, gave him fake papers and a new name. Hussein, now Mohammed, was made to clean this stranger's house and look after children and act as a domestic servant and not allowed to go to school until the age of 12 when teachers were told the lie. The only thing I could do to get away from this was to get out and run, he's been saying. And as the race winds piled up, the young athlete felt able to confide in his PE teacher, and that fine man intervened. Social services were contacted and told the truth, and he was placed with a foster family from Somalia, and his life began to improve. The boy was granted British citizenship under the name Mohammed Farah and given a passport so he could compete internationally. So he continued to use the name. I kept it all locked up, he says. Now the truth is out publicly, the Home Office has said it would take no action because children are not responsible for what happens to them. Which is a rare case of common sense and justice prevailing because, let's be honest, if he was not famous... If he was not a knight of the realm, if he was not Sir Mo, there's enough evidence to suggest he might not be treated this way. Islam, Judaism, Christianity, they all have this idea that we are equal in the sight of God. Young and old, rich and poor, we come into the presence of the divine as equals. God knows religious institutions have failed to live up to that over the centuries, but the idea is there and it's there in so many other faiths, creeds, paths, traditions and cultures across the world and time because this is among the best ideas we have had as humans. That everyone is equal and equally loved, equally lovable. Therefore we should love each other equally and when we do the rules of the world get turned upside down. And briefly, for a while in the summer of 2012, as the Olympics became the Paralympics, we acted together like we knew that. It was great. And I remember Mohamed Farah sitting in that press room back in 2012, after a win, being asked by a reporter if he would not rather be running for Somalia. I remember the intake of breath from those of us who thought we understood and the look of hurt on his face for a moment with a secret backstory none of us knew. Before he answered with a wide smile and a deep grace. Not at all, mate. This is my country. Thank you for listening to the story. Can We Talk is brought to you by the good people of Hodder Faith, and you can get in touch with me via the website hodderfaith.com or on social media where I'm Cole Morton, as in real life. But I'd like to finish by offering you something else to listen to, which I recorded on my phone in the stadium on the night when Mo had won his race and was just about to get his medal. So here he is on the podium and you're about to hear all of those people in the Olympic Stadium rising together to sing the national anthem, which, whatever you think of that, was a hell of a noise. So wholehearted, so full-throated in the moment, it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up just thinking about it. So turn up the volume, and here it is.